You know, Hardware's 11 years old next month. You know, we're a pioneer and I'm not going to let something like a pandemic change that for us. You know, for us, this is just about knuckling down, getting the job done and, you know, making sure that we can continue for another decade, you know. It's, it's failure is not an option. I'm Danny Vallant and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. This week on Dirty Linen, we're chatting to people from all around the world and we are heading today to Barcelona to talk to an Australian who's over there. Di Keyser is the owner of the Hardware Society, one of the most Melbourne of Melbourne cafes that there is, a beautiful haven for great coffee, interesting breakfast dishes, just really creative. And I guess one of the ways that I can still connect with Hardware Society at the moment, Di, is to look through your beautiful book, which never puts eggs on toast, but looks at brunch in incredibly creative ways. So I'm so thrilled to chat to you. Thank you for chatting to me in your Barcelona morning and my Melbourne late afternoon. Thanks for having me, Danny. It's nice to hear your voice. It's great to hear your voice too. And we have been in touch a little bit through the pandemic, even though we've always been in different hemispheres and time zones. But uh, yeah, tell me about your life at the moment. Why are you in Barcelona? Well, basically, um, we moved to um, France, taking just a step backwards. We moved to France um, in 2016 to open Hardware Society in Paris. Um, so Will and myself and Jesse Keane, who's our operations manager here, and Carla Isles, who was our chef, um, all packed up, moved over here to do that. Um, and we both get a bit itchy feet and we obviously both um, have a burning desire to continue to do things and sitting idle in Paris just wasn't cutting it for us. So we sold up our homes in Paris and um, bought an apartment in Barcelona with the view to opening hardware in Barcelona. So having the three businesses um, operating obviously in tandem. So um, so we moved here at the um, start of February and um, and then Corona hit. So that's kind of where we're at and why we're here. <laughs> that is a pretty interesting time to move cities, to pack up <laughs> your life again um, and just, yeah, move into a pandemic and lockdown. So, yeah, tell us, tell us what happened after you moved to Barcelona. Well, Basically, we'd been here maybe three weeks before the shit really hit the fan, pardon the French, um, and then we were really, it was really obvious then that we were in a lot of strife in, as in Europe. Um, so we had actually had some very good friends here when it got to the point that Singapore was closing their borders and nobody could get back to Australia if they're on Singapore flights. So they basically had to cut their trip short in order to get home and then they self-quarantined for 14 days after that and then... Then, then it was real. It was like, okay, well, if something happens, we can't get back to Australia without being in quarantine. Um, and then our lockdown hit, which was probably more severe than Melbourne's stage four lockdown um, in that the only things that were open were supermarkets and pharmacies. Only one person could go to the store. There was no exercise. There were no children allowed out for the first 10 weeks. Um, the only way we could go out was because we had dogs. So we, it was like having a lotto ticket. We also thought about, you know, putting them up on um, eBay and auctioning them for hourly walks um, because people were just being very creative about how they could go and do exercise here. People were carrying goldfish in bowls and, you know, taking their cat for a walk, you know, because, you know, being stuck in an apartment, 
you know, you guys are a week in, you know what it's like. It's not easy, but you've just got to make the best of it. So it was tough, but we got through it. So, and Did you need a permit to go out with a dog? Was that the scenario? No, but we needed a permit if we were going to a supermarket. So you would actually have to write where you lived um, your social, like your registration number, your personal registration number, and you would need a, a with the date on it, and you would need that to go to the supermarket, and one to come back from the supermarket. You know, because a lot of people would just be out walking around with supermarket bags, pretending they were going to the supermarket when they were just out having a walk. So, you know, you encounter the same things in different countries. It's no different in Australia, where someone wants to go and do exercise in a different suburb because they want a change of scenery, but it's not within their 5K radius. We only had a one kilometre radius. So. Oh, wow. And you just moved there. So, I mean. Yeah. I guess it's, in a way, it doesn't matter that you didn't have friends there because you couldn't have, or not to say you didn't have friends there, but in a way it doesn't matter that you, yeah, you were you were making your way in a new city, but wherever you were, I guess, in that scenario, you just locked in. Does doesn't matter, yeah. We, look, we made good use of it. You know, we have a rooftop terrace here. We're really nice neighbours, so Will would cook and we'd deliver food to our neighbours. You know, Will was, like, going stir-crazy, so, you know, there'd be curry night, you know, he'd be making scones or there'd be banana bread. So, you know, we just tried to make the most of a bad situation and, you know, Stein and Yumi were our, you know, closest contact and our next-door neighbours. So, you know, we just tried to make a bad situation a little bit better, I guess. And how did um, Spain come out of it? Because you haven't been in Barcelona the whole time, have you? Um, we had we did a trip back to France when the borders opened because by then Paris had reopened because after Barcelona went into lockdown, then France went into lockdown. So then both of our businesses were closed for an extended period. Um so we had to go back and make sure everything was running okay there and, you know, because after a closure of a long period of time, you just want to be sure. So, look, everything feels normal but it's also August so everything's super, super quiet. You know, obviously there's no tourism um, but even residents, you know, they're exiting the city, they're going to their holiday homes, they're heading down the coast for a holiday um, all those things. So it's a very quiet city right now. Because uh, there is a second wave in Spain as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So um, particularly in the Catalonian region, you know, we have lots of fruit and things like that. So there's been a lot of fruit pickers that have been affected. Um, young people, and it's the same in Australia, you know, that whole second wave seems to be around young people being less cautious um, and I think that that's the problem really. So, you know, but we saw that when we were coming out of, you know, we had three phases, um, to get back to the new normal. So every two weeks there was a new phase in terms of what we were allowed to do. Um, so that sort of made it easy, but you could also see that people were becoming more relaxed because they could do things that they couldn't do previously. So it's a really, it's a difficult you know, rope to balance, really. I mean, the, I don't, the Spanish economy can't afford to go into a lockdown. So it's about trying to contain outbreaks as best you can. It, it's so tough. I mean, I think Spain's had around 30,000 deaths, which is chilling to say out loud and horrifying to think about. I mean, we can compare the lockdowns between where you are and where I am, but, the, you know, the amount of death and severe illness in Europe is just vastly 
ahead of Australia. But I mean, I guess the difference the difference is the borders. You know, you can just drive across a border. So, you know, the disease doesn't discriminate. It catches a host and it hops on and it goes along for the ride. You know, whereas in Australia, the government made some very good decisions very early about closing borders and preventing people from travelling into Australia because those people that are asymptomatic are just passing it on and passing it on. So, you know, I think that Australia had a really good basis for making some good decisions about how to stop the spread um, and the first thing was the borders and then that's what happened here. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the numbers, it's its frightening. I mean, it's, you know, it's so much in aged care and that worries us. Will's mum's in aged care in Australia as well. So, you know, it's it, all those things weigh on you when you know that you can't get back. You know, my parents are like in their late 70s, early 80s, and trying to tell them that it's not safe to go to the supermarket is just, it's like blowing hot air. Nobody wants to listen. How do you tell an 80-year-old you can't do that? Yeah. It's crazy. Well, it's really tough. And I've had had firm words with my parents on exactly that topic. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, none of us like having our freedoms curtailed and everyone wishes we didn't need to take it seriously. Uh, But I guess yeah, we do. <laughs> like, there's just yeah, we do. Yeah. I think w- we do. But then I think you know, there's those poorest borders in Europe. There's the harder national borders in Australia. But what uh, making those decisions uh, either way, whether it's to relax them or, or to make make hard and fast rules, none of that solves the problem of how you come out the other side. And you say, you know, the Spanish economy can't afford to lock down, but uh, can it afford to have cases back to where they were uh, previously? Like. I don't think they can, but I think what they are seeing now is a very different pattern. Before it was very aged care driven, whereas now there's a lot younger people getting the virus. They're actually, before, you know, when the virus hit here, they were so overwhelmed in the medical system, you know, they were only testing 10% of cases, whereas now they're testing between 60 and 75% of cases. So naturally, you're going to get a different result when you're testing higher. Sorry, I don't mean to sound like Donald Trump, but <laughs> I know, yeah. that is the, f- but, but, but it's the fact. Sure. And, you know, it's very, very different. You can't compare March when the pandemic hit here to where we are now. It's just, it's, it's different, you know, and I think people's behavior is different too. You know, everybody wears a mask. It's just common courtesy. You go into the supermarket, you disinfect your hands, you have to put plastic gloves on before you even walk into the supermarket. These are all things that are just normal to us now. When we reopened in Melbourne, we ensured that we had masks for all of our staff, all of our wait staff wear masks before it was even mandatory because we knew sitting here, seeing what we saw, that that was one of the best ways to protect our team. That's super important. That's so interesting. I mean, tell me about how you manage a Melbourne cafe when you're on the other side of the world in in completely different circumstances. Well, I mean, you obviously know Aaron and you know how amazing he is. We're very, very lucky to have Aaron Taylor. I know you have amazing people. And I think that that's the difference. I mean, you empower people to make decisions. They might not be the decisions that you would ordinarily make, but on a day-to-day basis, you know, you have to let people be and give them that authority to 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 be that person. And, you know, if someone loves their job, they're going to do right by you anyway. So, you know, it's 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 been a learning curve this year particularly. 
being so far away and not being able to do the things that we would ordinarily do. But at the same time, it's business as usual for us. You know, our team are wonderful. They do a great job and we're grateful. So... What about the uh, Paris business? How did that go through? Um, Paris, we're probably it, it's been slow. We're right at the boot of Sacré-Cœur, so it's very touristic based, um, as is Melbourne. But we seem to recover better in Melbourne than we did in Paris um, when we were open for a period in Melbourne. Um, but Paris is slow. It's super quiet. I mean, it's July, August anyway, so you have a lot more people out of town. We're hoping that by the time we hit September, things will start to, people will find a new rhythm. But unfortunately in France, they didn't take the, um, the mask wearing very seriously. And now France is starting to see that second wave as well. So it's going to, I don't know what could, what could happen. You know, Paris was in the red zone and then we reopened. So it could be that Paris goes back into a red zone and then we have to close for a period. I don't know. But it's the same in France. You know, the, the French economy can't afford that either in terms of how much they're paying into social um, payments for staff as well is large. So, yeah, I guess we just have to wait and see. So your staff in Paris, what sort of um, government support do you, do they have and what does the business have from the government? Okay, so we only get support for the staff that we um, continue on a partial chômage, which is like partial unemployment. So they get paid by the government 70% of their ordinary um, pay week. Um, but our staff contracts are um, on 42 and a half hours and the government will only pay to 35 um, but the business still can't contribute on top. So we have a couple of staff on chômage, um, but in saying that our staff wages are super high at the moment given what we are taking. So it's tough. It's not just us, it's everyone. So you've just got to knuckle down and hope that things get a bit better. But the, to be honest with you, in terms of government support, there's nothing compared to what Australia is doing. Because you've got people here that are on JobKeeper? Yeah, we do, but... As you would know, as in most hospitality businesses, um, a lot of our staff are foreign or on 457 visas or the new 482 or whatever it is. So um, that's been tricky. But um, but even, you know, all of the additional boosting cash bonuses, all of those things, Australia actually – people do not realise how lucky we are to have been able to qualify for those kind of grants. It's amazing. And none of that exists in France. None of that exists about, you know, being able to talk to your landlord about getting some abatement, all of those things. There's no dialogue around that in France. So I think anybody that's got a lot to complain about right now really needs to look overseas and see what's happening in other countries and understand that we actually have a pretty good deal. That's good to get that perspective. Um, so back to the wages thing in Paris, like everybody listening may well understand and I just might be the dummy that doesn't quite get it. So do you? did you mean that you have to continue to pay your staff the 30%? No, we don't. No, we don't. No, no, no. no okay. No. So when you're unable to pay them, they get a sort of an unemployment that relates to their previous wage but they only but only relates to that 38 hours or whatever it was you said? Yeah, 35. So at the moment um, the chômage partial chômage, um, partial unemployment um, was only until the 30th of September, but the government is looking at extending that beyond that period because what will happen is there will be a mass amount of redundancies. 
mass because from a hospitality perspective, um, there, there's no way that they can afford to keep staff on just standing around doing anything, nothing. I mean, we've gone from running a seven-day business. We close Tuesdays, Wednesdays now um, because it's just not busy enough. So, you know. I mean, don't you think that's going to be the same here though once JobKeeper goes? Well, they are extending JobKeeper and we've got to hope that by next March there's some form of new normal, there's some form of we have a vaccine or there's another solution. So, I mean, we seem, Australia seems to get it a bit better. They seem to have a bit more of a long-term objective and, you know, maybe by March, hoping that, you know, then that's 12 months from, you know, go to woe, maybe by then that that there is going to be some form of a new approach, you know. I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, it's crazy to think that that's going to be a, a year, isn't it? I mean, you just, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Do you still think you'll open a place in Barcelona? Absolutely. I mean, we're committed to doing it. We came here to set up a program and a project and we want to do that. But, you know, we obviously need to ride things out here a little bit more and, you know, see where things go. Um, but, you know, we, we want a project here as well. So um, we just have to hang in there really, just like everybody else. I guess, you know, continuing with current businesses is is optimistic. So you, you might as well parlay that optimism into opening a new place as well. Absolutely. You know, this this blip in our life is, it, it's a blip. I mean, okay, it's it's not easy, but you've got to understand that, you know, we're committed to our businesses. There's not an option for us to just walk away. It's not going to happen. You know, Hubware's 11 years old next month. You know, we're a pioneer and I'm not going to let something like a pandemic change that for us. You know, for us, this is just about knuckling down, getting the job done and, you know, making sure that we can continue for another decade, you know. I love that. that Failure is not an option, (laughs) but it's not, you know. That's so good. What... Why do you love doing cafes so much? Well, it's all about the people, you know. Um, I came from a corporate background and was a chef. Um, so um, it was really different going from that to being on the floor and dealing with customers and obviously as time's progressed, um, I haven't had to do that. But it's about our people. It's, you know, it's a really interesting path to tread. You know, it's the creativity of designing a space. It's it's about the food. It's being on top of things. It it, it keeps me busy, you know, and that's that's the most important thing, I think, for me. What, how different is it to run a cafe in Paris than in Melbourne? Let's not, not in pandemic times. But <laughs> um, complicated. I mean, French is, my French is terrible. Um, but, you know, just the rules and regulations in terms of staff contracts, you know, no casual staff, all of those kind of things. There's no way you can predict, you know, busy periods, not so busy periods, you know, your peaks and troughs just don't exist in a country like France, you know, everyone's got to be on a contract, you can only have someone on a short-term contract for up to six months, they're two, three-month contracts, if you want them to stay, they have to be permanent, it's just, it's a minefield, like, (laughs) it's crazy. That is so radical, like, hospitality owners in Australia would be just thinking, what, how do I run a business without casual staff? Yeah, I know. 
you don't need to tell me. So it's just you just suck it up. It's but I mean it's interesting. Our wages costs are actually a lot less in France than they are in Australia. I mean our wages costs in Australia sit at about forty five percent. Obviously that's because we take the right path and a lot of people don't. Um, and um, in France our wages costs are less even though it's determined by the government. So it's an interesting um, scenario really. I mean what I wouldn't do to have casual staff. <laughs> yeah, I mean what do you do? Do you just run it all a little bit lean uh, because you don't want to have those people, you know, yeah, you can't staff up as much as you'd like to in busy times because then you'd have to have those staff there the whole time? I think four years in we, we have a really good sense of the numbers we need for the days of the week. Um, so, so we're quite well attuned to, to being able to, to roster adequately. Um, so, you know, it, it's not as bad as it sounds, but, um, it, it's certainly, it could be worse. It, it's just all a learning curve, really. Sure, sure. And is Barcelona or is Spain a completely different system again? Well, we haven't even got that far yet. So, you know, we dive in, we find something, we go, okay, this will do, and then we do everything else around it, So, which is pretty much how we set up Paris. So we just have to wait and see. It's, you know, yeah, it'll work. Well, what about... What about the um, the customer side of things? I mean, I know you have a lot of tourists in Paris normally, but what what's what do diners want from a cafe in France as opposed to Melbourne? Well, before the pandemic, the majority of our clients, well, say fifty percent, were probably Australian and Americans, so they kind of get that whole brunch thing quite well. Whereas now, post post you know post closure, um, everybody's either Dutch or German or French. The French tend to adopt a philosophy where you go out for brunch and you have like a set brunch. So, you know, you get a little bit of scrambled eggs, a small bowl of granola with some fruit and yogurt and a croissant and then maybe some fried brioche or a banana cake to finish. Whereas when we opened and we're like, okay, well, this is the menu and the menu doesn't vary and you order a dish. And so it was quite a um, an interesting um, path to tread explaining that you can't change things. You can't build your own breakfast. This isn't how it's done. But, you know, four years on, we were, we were pumping good numbers. We were doing great things. Um, and, you know, it was awesome. I mean, it's been a tricky 12 months for both Melbourne and Paris. I mean, you know, we had the Gilets for a period of time. Um, then we had all of the strikes in December and January in France because of the, the reforms. Um, so that pretty much stuffed January and February, uh, Jan- uh, December and January sales-wise for us. Then in Melbourne we had all of the bushfires and that had exactly the same effect. And then February was okay and then by March everything had gone to shit again. So... <laughs> It's um it's been an interesting period. There's a lot of world events that have uh, intersected your business life. It's yeah. But it's not only me, so you know, it's just about how you carry yourself and how you deal with things. You know, there's no point letting it weigh on you and creating negativity and stress and depression because that's not good for you, it's not good for your people, it's not good for people your family when they know that you're so far away you've just got to put your best foot forward and and take it as a challenge and know that it's going to be okay in the end because it's not us it's not only us it's not it's everybody so you know what what can you do it's not like they've just singled us out so (laughs) sure 
Uh, is that an attitude that you took into this uh, or is that something that you've had to develop through long nights in lockdown? No, to be frank, I, w- I was having a big panic in January about it and having a lot of conversations with Aaron about it, seeing what was happening in China and Aaron's like, Dad, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. You know, I said the same thing to our landlords and everyone's like, you're panicking, don't worry about it. And then it happened and and then I was like, well, look, now I can't do anything about it. What it is is what it is. We've just got to knuckle down and make the best of a bad situation. So, you know, we spent three months in lockdown with our dogs and, you know, it could have been worse. You know, and we lost our dog, Mosley, um, our oldest beagle who came from Australia um, in June. He had cancer. So, you know, we got to spend lockdown with him and I think that that was a gift that, you know, it, it came out of us, out of it. So I feel grateful for that. So... Mm. Let's talk about dogs because I know that you are such a dog lover and personally, even though my dog often barks while I'm recording this podcast and requires some nimble editing from Rob, thanks Rob, um, she is such a treasure and a comfort and she's so in the moment and I really appreciate having her around me all the time but especially at this time so tell me tell me about you and dogs and a global pandemic well I I I guess I mean it's obvious when you read our book that you know that there's been a journey for us with our with our four-legged friends we don't have kids but that's our choice um so we've always gone down the path of adopting dogs so when we moved to France obviously the boys moved with us and over the last few years both Mosley and Snoopy got cancer and unfortunately they've both passed now but we adopted a, a Sabueso Espanol, which is a Spanish hunting dog, um, three years ago, Rob Lair, and he's a very damaged soul. So it's been a very interesting ride with him because he's very frightened of people and you bring someone into the home and it takes time for him to trust them. And so it's it's been hard. Um, and then we knew that when we lost Snoopy, we needed to get a backup for Rob Lair because Mosley had cancer. So we adopted Harold last June and he's like this big furry giant beagle with the biggest ears you've ever seen. And he's hilarious. <laughs> so he's a really good, um, he's a really good um, balance for Rob Lair, um, in that he's scared um, Rob Lair's scared. Harold's got that confidence and they get along like a house on fire. They play all day. So, it, you know, I think it's been a real blessing to, to, to have that comfort around us in such a shitty time. Yeah, and especially as they were your literal <coughs> ticket to freedom in hard lockdown. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. So it was it, not that we ever planned that, but, you know, you got dogs, you've got to take them for a walk. So, And we had a one-kilometre radius, so we treaded the pavements a few times a day, every day, and, you know, it was okay. That's good. Well, I have to say, Di, I love your attitude um, and I feel like you're going to be – you're ready to, like, leave this behind you and put it in perspective and it'll be like, oh, yeah, the pandemic, yeah, we, we smashed that, we got through. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, I really hope that everybody else has got that same mindset. It's about positivity and, you know, just hang in there. It'll be okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for the wise words. Thanks for um, sharing your Barcelona morning with me. Um, and, yeah, g- good luck. I-, I can't wait to visit the cafe in Paris and in Barcelona, but probably even before that in Melbourne. I cannot wait. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. I appreciate you thinking of us and we'll speak to you soon. Great. Thank you so much, Di. 
This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>